I'm going to be reading verses 3 through 5. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. The Bible says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to be in your house again and just for the privilege, Lord, of worshiping and fellowshipping. We're asking this morning, Lord, again, as we come to your word, that you would would use the sharp two-edged sword of your word to pierce to the core of our being, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged us. Are encouraged, and you would reprove us where we need to be reproved, Lord, that you would use this word to shape us and mold us a little more into the image of Christ, and that it may impact the way we live the rest of this day and the days ahead. And as always, Lord, we ask that you would use this vessel to bring glory and honor to your holy name, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I'm probably not going to do the videos, uh, Rochelle, so don't worry about that. Hey, uh, you guys, I'm I'm sure that everyone in this audience has heard the term, the war on women. Everybody familiar with that term? Right, but I had to ask the question, what does that really mean? How do we define the parameters of this so-called war on women that uh, we have been told exist. And so I started kind of tooling around a little bit to see if I could come up with a definition on what this war on women was about. So I I found this from a uh, 2011 uh, op-ed in the New York Times. And this is how they start their definition on this art from this article called the war on women. Says Republicans in the House of Representatives are mounting an assault on women's health and freedom. All right, so at least from their perspective, it has something to do with health and freedom, right? And then I turn to that uh, great reliable source called Wikipedia, and uh, Wikipedia defines the war on women this way. War on women is a slogan in United States politics used to describe certain Republican Party policies and legislation as a wide-scale effort to restrict women's rights, especially reproductive rights. So, it has to do with health and freedom and reproductive rights in particular. And I know everybody has uh, probably been... uh, enamored with this latest uh, news bite about the leak from the Supreme Court of the United States, right, as it relates to their current case regarding Roe versus Wade. And there's been a a whole lot of reaction to uh, that particular document and what that document uh, implies may happen. Well, in response to that, Uh, This is a website out of Rhode Island, the state of Rhode Island. It's called WPRI. So in response to that leak, as it relates to this issue, 
of the war on women, uh, specifically targeted at this uh, document uh, and the implications of it uh, uh, regarding Roe versus Wade. There's a doctor named Megan Smith who wrote in this article on that website, birthing people have the right to make decisions about their bodies, about their families, and about their futures. Then she goes on to say, we are in a war that we cannot lose. Now, I hope you caught what she said. The most important phrase in that statement were the very first two words, birthing people. In that statement, Dr. Smith has shared with us what is really the issue or this war that is on women, okay? And that issue has manifested itself in a variety of ways. Many of you probably follow to some degree the recent nomination uh, case or trial, I guess, or of Katanji Brown, right? Our, our most recent Supreme Court justice. And you remember when she was asked the question, uh, can you define what a woman is? And she pretty much says, uh, no, I can't define what a woman is because I'm not a biologist, right? You remember that is all over the news if you have to be blind or deaf not to have seen that statement. And again, that underlies this issue of what this war on women is all about, okay? Contrary to everything else we've already read, what is happening right now is telling us what this war on women is all about. And again, in response to this leaked SCOTUS document that implies that Roe v. Wade may be overturned, there have been just a plethora of responses to that. And there was this one gentleman, uh, is from, I think, the Washington Post, who went out on the street and just was asking, interviewing people about their response to this document and the issue of abortion and Roe versus Wade. And in that conversation, he would inevitably ask them, do men have a say in this issue? Almost all of those that he interviewed would say, no, men have no say in this issue. Men cannot have a say about women or people who have uteruses in their decisions with their body. All right, when they make that statement, this young man would ask them, well, will you define for me what a woman is? And to the person, they would either try to end the conversation or say, I'm not going to answer that question, or the one who used the term in the particular video I was going to show says, I don't know how this, that's a relevant question. Well, you are the person who used the term woman in your defense of your argument, and now you won't define the very term that you are using to defend your argument that only particular people can have a say on this. I'll only point out all of these things to help us understand that the real war on women today is the war to eradicate the concept of womanhood. And the frontline battle, while this abortion issue is very important, 
but the, it's not the frontline issue at this moment. The frontline issue on the war against women to eradicate the concept of womanhood is transgenderism. Now, I'm not going to spend my day talking about transgenderism in this sermon. The reason I'm pointing out all of this to you in the, in the forefront, in the introduction portion of this sermon, is to help us really understand what the war on women is all about. It's not to advance women's rights. It's to eradicate the concept of womanhood. It is, to use a term that's in the news nowadays with Disney, it's grooming us not to be comfortable saying what a woman or what womanhood is. So I thought today, since we have set aside this day to celebrate those women who we call our mamas, right, that we ought to take God's word and push back just a little bit on society and delineate from these few verses that Paul gives us here in this particular place, what true biblical womanhood looks like. And so we say to the culture, right, you're trying to eradicate womanhood, but it is part of the very created design of God. And it's fundamental to bringing glory to his name and to his kingdom. And so I thought we would, we would look at how Paul describes that. And we're going to unpack pack it with three headings, okay? But you need to understand those three headings are on four pieces of paper uh, that are sitting before me. But we're going to look at what a biblical womanhood or what a biblical woman should be, what a biblical woman should do, and what a biblical woman should honor. Okay, those are the three headings that we're going to look at today. So first, we look at the very first section of this passage. And and again, there's some context we need to understand uh, related to this because Paul starts off with uh, presbyteros, older women uh, in in the, the text. So there's this construct idea as it relates to the family of God. And incidentally, it's one of the things that we are espousing here in a, in a way. And it's called this idea of family, you know, family-centered worship, okay? While we still will have some, some age-graded concepts in Sunday school, but that's going to that's gonna be limited, okay, very limited, because we understand from God's Word that the, our greatest responsibility as followers of Christ and as the church of the living God is to help disciple and mentor parents to disciple and mentor their children, right? And I think that's the biblical construct. And even in the church, the older women and the older men have a particular role to help mentor and disciple the younger men and the younger women. And so the more we isolate each other, isolate ourselves from each other by age groups, the less we can do what God has called us to do as a body of believers. Does that make sense? And Paul has given us that construct in this chapter in the book of Titus. But we, we want to zero in on this idea of how Paul describes this biblical woman who he is charged with this role of mentoring these younger women. And so he 
gives us some characteristics of this biblical woman, this, this elder woman, if you will. And the first thing that he says about her, if you're following along in your text, he says that they are to be reverent in their behavior. Well, sometimes we don't grasp the understanding of what, what reverent really means in the sense of um, the Bible. And it really has to do with this concept of an air of holiness, okay? And we, we, we have the character of God that is exhibited in our life. And we mimic, if you will, the character of our Lord and our Savior. We, we mimic the character of Almighty God. And really, this is one of those unique words that the words that make this one word are not unique. But Paul has a way of a lot of times putting words together uh, where they would not necessarily be put together to describe the action or the, the characteristic that he's calling a person uh, to be. And, and so in this statement, kata uh, stematai is the Greek word. And it really comes from two words. Kata uh, is, is a kind of a preposition with uh, against, if you will. And then the other word, uh, histomai, is, is the root word, is to stand. So it's this idea of standing with something or standing in the presence of, of something. And so the real implication behind this word, this, this, whatever this, this reverence is, is the bearing of this woman's life. It is the stance that she is taking in her life. It is what's driving the ship, if you will. It's the rudder that is directing her course on this ocean of life. She is standing in, in this construct of reverence. And, and really, the, the construct of reverence, reverence has to do with the idea of holiness. That's at the heart of this word. And we know Peter's already demanded or told all of us as believers that we are to be holy as God is holy, right? So it makes sense that uh, not, that doesn't only just apply to male Christians, that applies to female Christians uh, as well. And again, th this is another compound word that Paul has, has put together in this text for us. And so the, the root part of the word, the, the beginning part of the word, the prefix of the word, I guess, would be holiness or have to do with holiness. And, and the, the, the suffix of the word would have to do with this idea of, probably the best way to describe it is to be conspicuous, right? We know inconspicuous, we're trying to hide things, right? Paul is telling this that this woman in her reverent behavior, in her holiness, in this, this driving construct of her life is to stand out in holiness. She's to be conspicuous in her holiness. It's not something she is trying to hide. It is on full display in her life that she is holy as her God is holy. So she has this foundation of truth, this foundation of faith that impacts the way she governs her life every single day. Not just one aspect of her life, but every aspect of her life is driven by this idea of her being holy as God is holy. So that's the first characteristic of this biblical woman. 
this biblical idea of biblical womanhood. The second thing that Paul says to us in our text, if you just look at the next phrase uh, in your Bible, it says, not slanderous. Well, I put in my notes, she's to be righteous in her speech. It's really interesting, the word that is used there. Uh, it's diabolos. Anybody, can you hear the word that's in there? It's the same word that's used for Satan. This word is used 35 times in the New Testament. And 32 of those times, it is translated as devil. Three times, it's not. It's translated either slanderous or malicious gossip. And Paul is the one who translates it those three times, or uses it those three times in that context. Paul didn't translate it into English. But Paul uses it in that context of, of describing an action of a human being. And so what he's saying about this lady, I, I like the term malicious gossip probably uh, better. I think it captures the, the idea of what Paul's trying to get out is this person is not going about saying untrue things or gossiping about other people. The contrary is true, as we'll see when we flesh out the rest of this text. This lady, this, this woman this biblical woman is about doing good, not just for herself and her family, but good in general to all human beings. So she is to be righteous in her speech and righteous in her language. And it's kind of interesting to think that when Paul chooses to bring up this characteristic of this person, what she ought not to do with her language, the implication is when a person is a slanderer or a malicious gossip, they are walking in the character of Satan himself, who is the great slanderer, right? So this lady is to be reverent in her behavior. She's to be righteous in her speech. And thirdly, she's to be restrained in her appetite. And I know I'm one to be talking about restraining in an appetite, right? But look, let's just see what the Bible says. Because if I preach, if, if I didn't preach, you know, uh, things that I'm guilty of, then I'd never preach at all because I'm guilty of a lot of things, right? Uh, so I have to preach things that God convicts me about as well. Now, he don't he, I'm not convicted about the thing that he's telling her to be um, uh, restrained in her appetite about. But, hey, I got an appetite that needs to be restrained in many other ways, right? So there, there are some fingers pointing back at me when we talk about this idea of restraint. But look what he says in this, in this uh, phrase. Not only is this woman not to be a slanderer, but she's not to be slave to much Wine and, and the word that's translated there, slave, the, the root word behind it is doulos, which is bondservant a lot of times in, in your translations. There's there, so, and the implication behind this word is in, it's, in the, it's in the perfect tense, and it's a participle. So in the perfect tense, it means it's something that the act really started back in the past, but it has continuing ramifications for today in her present life. So she, at some point in her life, became a slave, a willing slave, a doulos, if you will, to this strong drink or this alcohol or this wine. And it is bringing forth continuing consequences in her life to the present. 
And Paul is telling that this biblical woman, this, this biblical idea of womanhood, this characteristic of a biblical woman is a woman who is restrained in her appetite in that way. She's not given over to strong drink. This is not the first time that Paul's talked about this. He's talked about it with, with men as well, right? Uh, those who are going to be deacons or leaders in the church, they're not to be given to strong drink, right? In, a, in another place, Paul tells us in, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8, you remember this passage? And do not get drunk or do not be drunk with wine. But what should we do? What does he tell us we ought to do? All right, y'all got to study your Bible more. Be filled with the Spirit, right? And so whenever we are consumed with alcohol or any other drug, you know what it does. It impairs who we are. It changes our disposition, doesn't it? We've all seen those people who have been under the influence of whatever. Sometimes those people who are really nice get really mean. Sometimes those people who are normally mean get really nice, right? But it impairs our ability to think properly and to make proper decisions. It consumes us and controls us. And so Paul is telling this woman, be guarded in that appetite for those things that would hinder this ability you that God's given you to walk in this holiness and reverence of speech. Don't be given over too much wine. And that goes for all of us, right? I'm, I'm a teacher told her when it comes to alcohol. I'm, I'm not going to sit up here and tell you the Bible says never never put alcohol in your mouth. It warns strongly against it, right? But being drunk and being an abuser of it is sinful. I saw what it did to my father. I saw what it did to our family. And so I determined in my life that I'm not going to drink alcohol because it is a destructor of humanity. And you're fighting, you're playing with fire if you play with those kinds of things, okay? So just be warned. This lady, this biblical woman, she is restrained in her appetite in that particular way. So those are some characteristics of what this woman is to be. Now, Paul helps us understand in the next few verses, verses, uh, latter part of verse 3 on to verse 5, what this woman is to do. And in a word... This woman is to teach. In a word, she is to teach. Look at what it says in, in the end of verse 3. They are to, you can see how creative I am with my outlines, right? They are to teach what is good. How hard was it to come up with that point in, in the sermon? This woman is to be a teacher. She's to be a, 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 a mentor, a discipler of what is Good. And again, this is another one of those words that Paul strings together. Um, this is technically what's called a, a hapax legomena. I know you're thrilled to hear that, but it means it's only used one time in the Bible. This is the only place that this word is used. So this word in itself is unique, but the two words that make it up are not unique. The, the, the very first part of the word is kalos, which means good or beautiful. And the last part of the word is didaskalos, which means teacher. So she is to be a teacher of those things which are good or beautiful. Now, the question is, where do you think one might find such things that are good and beautiful to teach to other people? Well, I think they could probably find it in what is called God's word. Do you think not? God has revealed himself. He alone is good, and he's revealed his goodness to us in his word. And if those who would teach what is good and what is beautiful, well, I think, would find the concepts that they ought to teach from God's word. So the implication, if she's going to be a teacher of what is good, then she must first be a 
student of what is good herself, right? So she has to be a woman of the word who teaches the word and teaches the precepts of God's word to these, in particular, these younger women. And, and I put an aside beside that. While this woman in this context is being called by Paul to teach to the younger women in the church, the very first place that this woman ought to start is the younger people who are in her home called her children, right? She ought to start teaching her children these things first, and then she can teach all children that God gives her influence over later. Now, Paul gives us a bullet point list of things that this lady is to do, and I think all of these fall under this umbrella of what she is to teach um, in this text. Now, there's a couple of these things, all right? Our society has groomed us to cringe when we hear some of these terms we're going to hear. So I'm asking you to, to be patient and don't, uh, don't cringe when you hear these terms. Let's see what God's word has to say about these things and maybe we can understand them from a biblical way and not get our hackles up uh, just because we hear the phrases that God uses in these words. And to borrow a phrase from my favorite preacher, uh, Dr. Bodie Bauckham, uh, hey, don't shoot the messenger. If you don't like the word, just write a letter to the editor, okay? Because I didn't write it. I'm just delivering the mail to you, okay? So you and I need to understand what this lady is to do, this biblical woman, this, this, the, the things that, this, uh, that Paul describes about biblical womanhood and what God has called this lady to do. The first thing that he brings out in our text, again, what is she to teach these young ladies? First and foremost, to love their husbands and their children. And so that kind of sounds strange a little bit, doesn't it? To have to teach someone to love their husbands and their children. And we'll talk about that in, in just a moment. But the, here's the thing that I thought about when I read that particular phrase. I think God's inherently given two primary purposes to this biblical womanhood. Now, here's one of these areas where you may get upset with me, okay? And that's okay with me. <clears throat> but it's the reality of Scripture. And I get, there, there's, some, there's some peripheral issues, and we won't necessarily be able to talk about all of those, but maybe one or two. Here's the two primary purposes I think God has given to this concept of a biblical woman. You ready for it? Matrimony and maternity. You understand? I get it. God calls some people to be single, okay? I, I, I get that. Paul, the one writing this letter, you remember what he told us? He says, I wish every one of you were like me, right? Saying, I don't have a spouse. My life is dedicated to the kingdom of God. So if God calls a lady to singleness, and I'm telling you, that's got to be a calling, okay? If God calls a lady to singleness, guess what ought to be the primary focus and purpose of her life? The kingdom of God, okay? Now, whatever that looks like. Wherever God calls her and places her, I'm not saying she's got to be a missionary and go to the mission field. I'm just saying if God calls a lady to singleness and a male, if he calls a male to singleness, 
wherever he plants them, whatever career place that God opens up for them, that career does not define them. What defines them is the king that they serve and they use that career field to advance the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is the focus of their life. Almost everyone else, we're going to get married, right? Because God's wired us and designed us. A man shall leave his father and his mother and he shall cleave to his wife and they become one flesh, right? That, that is the created construct that God set forth in this universe that most men and most women are going to get hitched up and they're going to have children. Now we've perverted all of that, right? But that is the primary focus of this biblical woman's life is her family her husband, her children, with this as the guardrails of what her purpose is. It is to do everything in her power and her being with all the skill set that God has given her to advance the kingdom of God by being a faithful, godly wife to her husband and by raising up her children in the admonition of the Lord so that they can go into the world and they can raise up other children and they can disciple other people to bring glory and honor to God and advance the kingdom of God. That's the purpose. So if that's not our focus in life, and and again, we're talking about women today, but verses one and two, Paul talks about some men, right? And all you got to do is go over to Timothy, and Paul talks a great deal about those who would be men and leaders. All you got to do is go to Ephesians chapter uh, five, and Paul talks a great deal about men and their role and responsibility. Today, we're just focusing in on this issue of, of womanhood, and the primary purpose that God has given them is to be, and we'll talk about it in a moment, I'll get ahead of myself, but to be the the primary guardians of their family in, in the sense of guarding the spiritual and emotional and mental construct to be the manager of the household, if you will. And then that leads to one primary principle. Boy, I gotta hurry up. One primary principle that he gives is love. And he uses it in a unique way. He says to teach them to love. Now that doesn't make sense to us because we have so perverted the concept of love in our society, right? Our definition of love is that love is this passionate, emotional concept and it just grabs hold of you right and then sometimes it keeps on and sometimes it wanes away but it's all about the emotion and the passion of it it's like you know cupid uh you know that's our concept of love right cupid draw back your bow let your ever flow or fly or whatever the song says right and so we have this perverted idea of love we think it's all about emotion and if the emotion is not there then the love is not there but that's not the biblical understanding of love again i want to quote to you a biblical definition of love from my favorite preacher uh dr Bodie bacham he says that love is an act of the will accompanied by the emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object what's well, the best definition of love i've ever heard and he as a matter of fact, derives this definition not from this text. He derives this definition from Deuteronomy chapter 6. 
When the Bible says that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might, right? And so love in that way, the emotion may wane, right? But love is more than emotion. It is a choice that we make to love the object of our affection, whether it be God or whether it be our spouse. And so she trains these younger women how to love their husbands and love their children. Because sometimes we want to do like Mark Twain said with our children. Mark Twain said, whenever you have children, you need to put them in a wine barrel and put the lid on it and feed them through the bunghole. And he says, when they turn 16, plug up the bunghole. Right? Sometimes that's the way we feel about our kids because they sometimes do things that are stupid. But you and I were once kids who done things that were stupid. And so what do we do? Do we just cast them out? Well, some people do, right? But what does God call us to do? Love them in spite of their frailty and their infirmities and their sinfulness. Isn't that what God has done for us? So we ought to love and she's to train them to love. All right, moving on. She's got to be self-controlled. We really kind of talked about that in, in the issue of being restrained in her, in her appetite. Really, the, the word that's behind the self-controlled uh, has to do with being saved of mind or safe of mind. Uh, and, and the implication is to be sound of mind. And how do we do that? Well, well we're going to get there in probably a month or two when we get to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind, right? So Christianity is not just, hey, uh, it's all about faith. It impacts our mind. It impacts the way we think. We have, to, we have to be conformed to the truths of God's word. So how do we do that? Well, Paul helps us in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2. What does he tell us there? He tells us to set our mind on the things that are above. You remember a while ago we said, where might one find these truths that they can teach that are good and beautiful? Well, from God's word. And we are to set our minds on the things that are above. You see how all this works together? The driving force of her life, the, the, the bent of her life is about holiness and honor of God. And it impacts how she lives her life. And it impacts the way she teaches these young women to emulate this character of God, loving their husbands and loving their children and being of sound mind. And she's to be pure. And that's the next phrase in the text there. And it really comes from the word hagias, which is holy. And we've talked about that. Peter mentions be holy as God is holy. What does that mean? We, we are to be chaste in our behavior, right? We're to do everything in our, in our, our ability as human beings to do what God's commanded us. I think it's Romans chapter four or five. Paul tells us to mortify the flesh, right? Over and over again, Paul talks about taking off the old man and putting on the new man. We are to live in such a way that, that is worthy of the righteousness that God has bestowed upon us. To do our best to, to remove ourselves from temptation and to live in a sinless life. Now, I get it. We're not, we're not perfectly sinless in this world, right? But our desire ought to be. 
Our desire ought to be to overcome every temptation that this world and the flesh and Satan puts in our way. And this lady is pure in her life. And then she's to be the manager of her home. This is another one of those that gets, gets our hackles up when we hear this out in society, right? That we're trying to keep them barefoot and pregnant in, in the kitchen, right? And that has nothing to do with what the Bible is talking about. This lady, look at what, what Paul says about this particular, the particular lady. She, she's to be working at home is the ESV translation. But you remember a while ago I used that word guardian? Again, this is, this is another one of those words that, that are joined together. Uh, oikia or orkias is house or home uh, in, in the Greek. And that's the first part of the word. But the second part of the word is uros. And uros is to to guard. So she is to be a guardian of the home. So when it talks about her working at home, it's not saying, hey, keep her chained down and, and you know, tied to the, to, the, to the stove in the kitchen, right? It is, no, this lady, you, you want to talk about a lady who can, who can use the gifts that she's given uh, in, in the context of her home. Look at the Proverbs 31 woman, right? You know, people get so upset about the issue of, of, you know, should a woman have a career? Shouldn't she have a career? I'm here to tell you, a woman can have a career, but I'm still here to tell you that God's construct of biblical womanhood is that career is to be in or under the construct of her primary purpose, and that's to be the guardian of her family. And that, if you read Proverbs 31 and you read um, that section about the Proverbs 31 woman, everything that she did, she did, she bought and she sold, all the things she did were for the support and the guardianship of her home. Why? Because God has ordained her to be the guardian of the house. Does that mean she can't make money? Yes, she can make money. She can use her skills and she can have a career, but it's all for the purpose of advancing the glory of God and the honor of God and the kingdom of God primarily through the management of her home. And so that leads to, I don't even know what number we're on. Be kind. That's the very next one he says in the text. She's to be kind. Really, uh, probably a better translation is to be good because that's the word agathos is to be good. And I think it has two aspects to it. She's to be good in character, right? We've already talked about that. Pure, holy, reverent. She's to be good in character. But the implication behind this is she, be, she is to be good to other human beings, right? She, she is to care for them. And again, if you go read the Proverbs, Proverbs 31, oh, about the Proverbs 31 woman, she cares for the poor. She cares for those who are, who are uh, workers in her own home, right? She cares for those people. And so this lady is to be one who cares not only for her family, but she cares for other people in general. And then here's the one that really gets, uh, gets our hackles going, right? To be submissive to their own husbands. And we don't like that part, right? Because, again, we're saying, hey, you, you're putting them under the thumb of this husband. And the real idea of it is there is an organizational structure that God has designed in creation. 
And if you read Paul in chapter uh, Ephesians chapter 5, he outlines what this is a picture of. The home is ultimately a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. And the husband is to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And as the husband is under the lordship of Jesus Christ, this woman has come under this mission of the man. That's the way I like to describe it. If you take uh, the English word anyway, submission. Well, you got the prefix, which is sub and under, and the suffix, which is mission. So the man ought to have a mission that is related to his relationship to God. And he ought, he, his life ought to be about accomplishing this mission that God has given him for the kingdom. And this lady is to come up under this mission of the man. Not that he rules over her, but what does the Bible say that women are? They're a help me to man. When we read about this Proverbs 31 woman, what is she doing? The dude, the, the husband's at the gate, right? The, the, the political uh, area of the city, he's at the gate. And the Bible says he's known in the gate. Why is he known in the gate? Not because of who he is, but because of who she is and what she's doing. Now she takes care of him. Now she takes care of the family. So she has this important role to come under the authority that God has given the husband and join him in this mission that God has called him to, to advance the kingdom of God. The problem is there's so many of us who are dudes, right? That we have no idea of what God's mission is for our life. And how is it that the woman that we've married can come under something we don't even have a clue about. That's why there's so much tension about this issue. You and I need to understand, first and foremost, God has called me, the father, the head of the home, to understand his calling on my life, to understand the mission that he's called me to as it relates to the kingdom of God. Let that be the driving force of my life and my family. And then he's giving me, he's given me this help me to come alongside of me and join me in this mission that God has called us to. Wouldn't that be a beautiful relationship? All too often our relationship is, you know, we always talk about the ball and chain. But here's what our relationship is more like in, in human uh, marriage. I mean, in, in, in American marriage, at least. It's we're tied together with a chain and we're both pulling in opposite directions. All too often that describes what marriage is. And then somebody gets tired and they just cut the chain, right? And then we go our separate ways. The problem is we come to marriage so flippantly and it's all about emotion, right? We need to step back and say, what is marriage really? And why has God called me to this institution of marriage? What is our purpose in life? And we need to come to marriage that way, knowing that we're coming together for a purpose. Not just because she looks good, you know, or he looks okay, or he's got money, or she's got money. Not because we just enjoy sex, right? We need to come together because God created marriage for a purpose and a reason. 
And he's called a man and a woman to join together in this relationship for a purpose, namely to show the world how Christ and the church relate together, right? And how they are on mission to bring other people to Christ. So God's given us this construct to demonstrate his glory in this world through the relationship of marriage. And so... That's what Paul's talking about when he's talking about this issue of submission. It's not men lording it over women. It's that we come together for the same purpose and the same focus. The man takes the lead because that's the way God ordained it. And the lady comes alongside of him and supports him in that mission that God's given him. So the moral of that story is, dude, get a mission. Get on mission with God. And then ask your lady to follow you in that mission. And then finally, we'll be through. What is she to honor? Remember, that's the last one. Look what what she says. And and it could almost be related directly to this last statement. And, And submit, these ladies are to be submissive to their own husbands. And then he gives that henna clause. That the word of God may not be, the ESV says reviled, but the word is there is blasphemy, not be blasphemed or talked bad about or reviled or ridiculed or, or put down. But it also incorporates all of these things, I think, as a whole. Let, let me just end with this. I'm just going to share with you what I wrote down because I probably couldn't remember it like I wrote it down. Ladies, You are created uniquely by God. You are uniquely gifted by God. You are uniquely positioned by God to reflect his character and bring glory to his name as you disciple the next generation for the kingdom of God. So don't let the spirit of this age demean your God-given responsibility. Don't let the spirit of this age distract you from your God-given uniqueness. Push back. Stand strong on who it is that God has created you to be. The world wants to eradicate womanhood. But God says it is vital to showing my glory in the world. And we need to be champions of that in this world. For whatever that looks like in your unique place in history, however God has planted you in this world, in the place he's planted you, in the way he's gifted you, God has done it so that you can bring glory and honor to him. Don't be ashamed of that. Stand firm on what biblical womanhood is all about. And don't let this culture tell you any different. Father, we come to you this day. We thank you for this time that you've given us in your word. And I pray, Father God, that as we contemplate these truths that we have talked about today, that you would help us be the champions of biblical womanhood. Not only just with our voice, Lord, but we would help to disciple Uh, young women to become what Paul has called them to be, what God's word has called them to be. And Lord, as these ladies go out from here today, let them exhibit the characteristics of this definition of biblical womanhood that we found from Titus chapter 2. Lord, we thank you for what you're going to do today. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.